The Defense Department has laid down a brand new data analytics and artificial intelligence strategy. The Pentagon wants to focus on agility and how it adopts AI so it keeps up with the evolving technology. DOD officials released the new strategy late last week on the heels of the White House executive order on AI. Federal News Network's Kirsten Eric joins me with the details. Kirsten, tell us what's exactly in this new strategy. The strategy is meant to create a foundation for the adoption and usage of data, analytics, and AI across the Defense Department while promoting speed, delivery, learning, and responsible development. The AI strategy will help the DOD unify, synchronize, and scale AI across the enterprise, and it focuses on creating an environment for DOD leaders and personnel to effectively use AI data and analytics. A key component is the agile adoption of data analytics and AI across the department to help leaders make better, faster decisions. There are also several goals outlined in the strategy, such as improved data sets and infrastructure, more partnerships with outside groups, and removing internal barriers to help the department keep pace with adopting advancing technologies. Specifically, the strategy focuses on DOD's AI hierarchy of needs with good data as a foundation to responsible AI usage. And this is followed by analytics and responsible AI at the top. The hierarchy is intended to Another key element of the strategy is data shareability, so the DOD doesn't want data silos. Got it. And now they've had an AI strategy, and they have a whole AI joint artificial intelligence center that's been going for some time. So safe to say this was a reboot of the strategy already in place because of that White House executive order that came out last week? Yes. So the DOD had a strategy, an AI strategy in 2018, which set up, like you said, Jake, although that wasn't released until 2019. But then when the chief digital and AI office was set up in last year, Jake was kind of subsumed into that. And the DOD also had a data strategy. So this new strategy released last week kind of combines and synthesizes those earlier strategies while taking the changing tech landscape and department needs into consideration. And as you mentioned, the White House released a new executive order on artificial intelligence early last week. And this new strategy comes a few days later. They released it on Thursday. You know, and the White House strategy tasked DOD with creating a pilot program to explore how it can use AI to protect the nation's national security systems and networks. So this new AI strategy kind of builds off of the momentum across government as well as in DOD. And, you know, this is one of the the later but of many efforts of DOD with AI. So in August, the Defense Department established Task Force Lima which is looking at the responsible usage of generative AI in the department by looking at use cases and implications of that. The DOD leaders had a press conference. They had a release of this formally. You attended. What were they saying about it in person? Yeah, so Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks said that DOD is really focused on responsibly adopting these technologies where it can add value to the military. Our task in DOD is to adopt these innovations wherever they can add the most military value. That's why we've been rapidly iterating and investing over the past two-plus years to develop a more modernized, data-driven, and AI-empowered military now. 
In DOD, we always succeed through teamwork, and here we're fortunate to work closely with a strong network of partners in national labs, universities, the intelligence community, traditional defense industry, and also non-traditional companies in Silicon Valley and hubs of AI innovation all across the country. And Craig Martell, the department's chief digital and AI officer, emphasized the importance of having high-quality shareable data. And he also said that the strategy is going to more so focus on best practices as opposed to a rigid plan and that the department will need to work with industry. Look, logically speaking, if you do not have high-quality data, again, analytics is a fool's errand. If you do not have high-quality data, AI is a fool's errand. So the, the thing that has to get right logically first, and I'll, again, I'll, put, I'll, I'll explain that difference in a second, that has to get right logically first is we have to really focus on getting the data high quality and getting the data available and accessible. That was Craig Martell, the department's chief digital and AI officer. And it sounds like there's some urgency to what they're doing, almost like their replication strategy that Ms. Hicks rolled out a couple of months ago and then... We haven't heard another word about it, but she released it. So what's going on now? Is it the technology change? Is it the White House policy? Or is it maybe the world situation is demanding some agility and getting smarter about stuff? I think it's kind of a combination of all that. I mean, at the press conference, she talked about, you know, using Ukraine kind of as a good example of, you know, using technology smartly for defense purposes. But I also think, you know, across government, whether with the White House executive order on AI, as well as other DOD efforts that you're really kind of seeing this momentum, not only for, you know, technology like AI, but to, you know, use it effectively across government and in DOD and to really focus on how to use it creatively, other technologies that they could use that maybe they have to kind of figure out how they would use it and kind of looking at Ukraine as an example of that. Sure. So the Jake is still in business and it just has a different kind of mandate now, fair to say. Yeah, it's under um, Craig Martell's office, so the chief digital and AI office. And so that's one component of his office. But yeah, they're still really kind of focusing on that. And do they also have a way of getting this done? Do they have a roadmap for actually accomplishing this philosophy or strategy that they laid out? Yeah. In the coming months, the Defense Department will also be releasing an implementation plan to go along with the new AI strategy. And that is supposed to focus on best practices. Federal News Network's Kirsten Eric. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? 
Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is 
what do they need when they need it, and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. 
And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, 
find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're Thank you. uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.